sports. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, this is Jason Watt. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Mike Cosgrove from Tamlo. A lot of people will know Mike. He is at lots of industry events and, of course, is a well-known speaker on the topic of anti-money laundering. We have a wide-ranging interview here that covers almost a full hour, so I will be quick with my notes. This episode will be good for lots of CE credits. We have, of course, all the insurance councils, including... Alberta for both life and accident and sickness. As well, this will be good for an IROC compliance credit. It will be good for an IAS credit. And from FP Canada, it will be good for a financial planning credit. The color for today's episode is green. The color for today's episode is green. Okay, let's uh, hear what uh, Mike has to say. There's tons of stuff that we cover here, and you'll see a whole bunch of links. It's worth surfing through the links to today's show. I'll talk about that a little bit more after we hear from Mike and me. Okay, I'm joined today by Mike Cosgrove uh, from Tamlo. And Mike, can you just give us a little uh, background, who you are, what, uh, what you do, what your company is? Sure. Well, we provide um, engaging uh, frontline training in terms of AML financial crime training uh, for the various regulated sectors here in Canada and the U.S. We have courses for the U.S. market as well under the uh, jurisdiction of the BSA and the and FinCEN, but here in Canada under FinTrack. And our content is unique in that we produce award-winning videos. We we dramatize the activity that helps people engage with the material in a, in a real way. So we, we use case files, um, actual case files, and we fictionalize them and really bring them to life. So that's, uh, and I'm the, um, the director and VP of business development. I've been doing this now 10 years and actively engaged in the learning process. Um, it's quite an interesting field to be in. I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm sure you get exposed to all kinds of uh, case studies that, people would think are, are fiction. Is that fair, Mike? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because it's, it's one of the things that I hear is, uh, a, as you know, there's a, a strict regime for AML compliance for insurance agents, right? And I deal with a ton of insurance agents in my uh, day job. And I think when this thing rolled out, a lot of them, and I heard this, I don't think this, I've heard this a ton, where 
they felt like this was just another layer of compliance, really to no benefit. But I think you can dispel that myth for us, Mike. So I hear the same, every industry thinks the same way, that uh, there's no possible way that money laundering, uh, terrorist financing could happen in uh, their industry. But uh, that is not the case. Um, one of the, uh, the dramatizations that we do in our video called Carl's Story is that of a, a drug trafficker who actually exploits the insurance uh, industry in, in, um, in AML in um, having um, a, a cash life uh, insurance policy and, and then cashing out. So there's definite, definite methodologies to approach that. But, you know, in terms of the uh, financial crime, it is where the, the challenge exists because, um, you know, the financial advisor, depending on the instruments that they are, they are dealing with, whether they're securities or insurance, you know, they are there first and foremost to serve their clients. And that's their focus. And really, their focus is uh, involves helping their client maximize the return on their investment while, you know, protecting their asset against undue, undue risk or help mitigate those risks. Now, the thing to really, when we approach training is we're endeavoring to show the, um, whether your insurance or securities, show them the front line that good KYC provides the greatest window in understanding your client and provides for a mutually beneficial business relationship. So anti-money laundering efforts don't need to be viewed as an obstacle. Um, they actually flow hand in hand. This is where I call there's a there's an opportunity and there's a, and there's a challenge and the really it's the proper framing of all KYC initiatives. So from the perspective in the eyes of the financial advisor and you talked about this um, the challenges that they face one of the things is regulatory creep right they they have a lot of paperwork to do they have a stack of laws to comply with in terms of, you know, outside of anti-money laundering efforts. It's very easy to get overwhelmed and it's, uh, it's very easy to lump AML into one of those boxes that need to be ticked. But we have to, w one of the things that we do is really show them the activity behind, you know, so uh, behind all that, uh, those, um, you know, reports that they have to fill out. What is it actually doing? What's the, the end result? so that they can, they can see the full cycle. You know, I, I was thinking about this in terms of how um, the regulatory creep really kept, creeps in and the perception of uh, those who work as a financial advisor, for instance. I thought, have you, have you ever heard of Parkinson's laws? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, you have to fill me in here. Well, it's very interesting. Cyril Northcott Parkinson was a British uh, bureaucrat in the mid-1900s, and his laws are derived from an article he wrote in the Economist in 1955, and he, he was using it to explain these laws, how the British bureaucracy grew every year, regardless of the amount of work that needed to be done or was actually done. So, you know, a famous, uh, something I like to say is the bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the ever-expanding bureaucracy, right? So, so his laws basically is where we get the, the concept of work expands to fill the available time for completion, or expenditure rises to meet income, or expansion means complexity and complexity decay, which is the law of entropy. But basically, all that being said, the larger something is, the more complex it becomes, and the more complex something is, the more effort and energy is required to maintain it. 
that's where the real issue is here in terms of regulatory creep. So one of the challenges that happens in these regulatory in, re regulated industries like financial advisors is they just find themselves feeling like they're putting all this energy and just keeping up with the regulations, you know, the administrative side. And that's what I've heard uh, from many of my clients rather than the energy to take care of their clients and to build their business. It isn't that the striking the balance. Um, that's that's uh, what they feel like. And, you know, it's funny. Um, I was looking, I was talking with one of our, our clients uh, who is in the securities field. They have over 12 different bodies, regulatory bodies that they deal with. And so the, the chance for burnout is right there. And one of the things they, they said to me was they would never be in this for profession if they didn't love it so much and so where where we really come in where our company comes in is we really believe that education is the key it's the key you know it's the setting forth of the whys and wherefores understanding hey why do we need to do these anti-money laundering procedures and it's it's got to go beyond uh, honestly jason beyond just simply protecting yourself against liability or watching out for your company's reputation, those are definitely at stake. I mean, if you uh, get caught for, for instance, willful blindness, in other words, someone is laundering money in your firm and you should, you should notice it, the, it's, it's, it's obvious enough, and, and you, uh, there's willful blindness proven, you could go to prison. You could have a huge fine. So, but it's gotta go beyond that. Um, it's, it, it's, it's really setting before people the, the the idea that spotting an unusual unusual uh, activity and noting it for your compliance team could mean the difference between putting some really bad people behind bars or them just continuing and you know it could be the missing piece in the in the knowledge puzzle that helps law enforcement build a case against a human trafficker or a terrorist network um and you know we we were talking before we started this conversation about human trafficking and the initiatives that have been done you know, it's, that's where you really see, I, I think, you know, you talked about the, um, you know, clients or people that work in this industry not really thinking the behavior is real. I actually had a compliance person tell me, um, I showed them the video of our, our Carl story, and they actually told me that none of their staff think this stuff is real. And she sat and watched our video with her husband who was in law enforcement. And he looked at it and he said, this is exactly what happens. And so it's really communicating how important it is to fill out that suspicious transaction report um, and that this activity is really happening. And you know, in our video, um, we make the frontline employee the hero of the story. So that is important. It can't be understated the importance of emotional engagement and learning. Um, you know, in his book, uh, I don't know if you've read his book, Simon Sinek, it's, it's called Start With Why. And he says, when people are financially invested, they want to return. But, but when people are emotionally invested, they want to contribute. And that's where learning really sticks. It's engaging people on an emotional level. So it's them seeing that this is not, these are not victimless crimes. Um, these are the, and, and so we craft powerful stories. Um, stories are so integral to what we do in terms of uh, training people and you can do this we do this with video dramatizations it's sure it's a lot easier to to watch a video than to just read a, a, a pile of facts on a PowerPoint or a page 
Um, but storytelling allows you to speak with your audience and not at them. Um, so it's very, it, it's very, very powerful. And if you've read, um, Daniel Taylor uh, is an author who wrote The Healing Power of Stories, and he brings up a good point. He says, a story does what facts and statistics never could. It inspires and motivates. You know, expert storytellers translate complex ideas into concrete examples laced with strong emotional connections. So the audience tunes in because they see themselves woven into the story. And so that's what we do. We show um, when we in our training video and as well as our courses, we put the actual insurance agent, we put the security, uh, the financial advisor, the person selling securities in the actual foot, uh, you know, feet of these people that are selling. They're behind the desk and they're actually selling these products and they're helping to stop this activity by their reports. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a fantastic level of passion you bring to this, Mike. That's uh, it really comes through. Um, both for the education side and for the, the specific subject matter. I think that's great. Just going back to your comment about uh, this really shouldn't be any more difficult than your, your sort of proper KYC. Exactly, yeah. So is there something that anybody who's in that frontline role should be paying particular attention to in the KYC? Is there anything you find that, that's uh, the, the yellow flag or red flag or whatever the case is? Well, in terms of, um, I'll just give an example. In terms of elder financial abuse, um, we've had several uh, cases where we've seen with our clients where um, they spotted some some red flags. And you know, elder financial abuse is a, we developed a, another course on that using video dramatizations as well. Um, it's very important to spot. And and again, you're looking out for the interest of your client first and foremost. So um, I, there was a, a case where uh, a gentleman who was, who had developed dementia. He was a he was um, part of um, he had his investment investments at this particular firm, and his his financial advisor had noticed that the gentleman started cashing out some of his RSPs. So that's a big thing. Like so, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, cashing out RSPs, and over a period of eighteen months, he actually cashed out over three hundred thousand. In that process. The um, this the the advisor actually reached out first with by by a phone call. He he sensed that something was up, but he couldn't tell. So he went and paid him a visit. So this is where the personal relationship, really understanding your client, really comes in. And so he actually paid him a visit, and it turns out he did not know about the, this this gentleman had developed Alzheimer's, but he found out that his son had been had moved home, had lost his job, was living with his father. And his son was pushing him to uh, liquidate his RSPs. And so in, in that discovery, he was able then to figure out what was going on. It, by that time, it was a little bit late. But there's things very similar to that that you can notice. And it's really, um, you know, we've, I've had several cases of uh, um, one case. I'll just give you one, for instance, um, where... Um, an uncle, uh, this uncle, his niece started, took over his portfolio and she used a power of attorney, what looked like a legitimate power of attorney. She approached the, the, the firm and presented the, the power of attorney and, and it asked to start transferring some of his funds to an account. And um, 
some of that it started happen. Uh, the report was filed, so it was it just seemed a bit odd. You know, it 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 was sort of out of the blue. The compliance officer actually stepped in when she got uh, the note from the staff and did a little digging. The first thing she tried to do was call him. Um, couldn't reach the nursing home, found out that it, he actually wasn't in a nursing home, that that was actually a, a lie. It was a, committed by the niece. Then she contacted the bank that these funds were being wired to, and the bank knew very little about the niece. Um, in fact, they said they had not heard about her until she came in with the power of attorney and, and um, you know, was, was registered on the account. So that's when... Uh, you know, this compliance officer called the police in to really do a thorough investigation. And what she had discovered is, uh, and, and, and there's some good news here. There's a, there's a good end to the story. What she discovered is the power of attorney wasn't really, in, wasn't authorized. So it wasn't authorized properly because the commissioner of oath was out of province and was not in good standing. The person who had signed off as the witness. And so they were in, able to nullify the power of attorney and then able to return what she took was over $1.2 million out of this gentleman's account. So um, there's some good news. They were able to return the funds, but those are the kind of things uh, to look for. And, you know, in terms of insurance with money laundering, it's the cash value life insurance policies that really are, are the targets. Um, and, you know, in, in our story with Carl and the the, the money laundering scheme, uh, one of the character's name is Jimmy. He goes to the insurance um, uh, the sure insurance agent, and he takes out a very large cash value life insurance policy. And then at a certain point, he goes into to to uh, cash it out, and his, he comes up with all excuses. These are all well thought through. You know. Um, he had a really big sickness in the family. They needed money. Um, they always, you know, these are well thought through schemes. It's amazing um, how much time people invest in actually coming up with the, these intricate uh, schemes and scams. Uh, but um, they're, that's, a, that's a real red flag. Yeah, I've heard that stories like that where the, let's say it's a child who is trying to essentially commit elder abuse and they'll send their parent in with like a detailed almost script. Yep. So one of the other places that I hear uh, some pushback from agents where they say it's just a compliance thing is around actually having to have a process in place. And this is where I'm, I'm hoping again, you can put people at ease a little bit or let them know what, what's really required in terms of having a, a, a written document or process in place? Well, for it, it, you can't have consistency in training if the, your processes aren't laid out, right? So it's not just for the regulator. You know, the, this is what I hear on the compliance end. When you get audited, um, you, the, the, the phrase that's used is document, 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 document everything you do, document, um, you know, document where you've, you've taken efforts to, for instance, uh, um, acquire the, uh, to find out who the beneficial owner of an account is or a shell company. You've got to document all your efforts. But from the perspective of uh, the, the, for instance, an, uh, ins uh, a financial advisor and a, a, um, an insurance company, your policies and procedures, this is, this is sort of 
it just gets into my background of loving language. So <laughs> I love language. So just indulge me a bit. You know, the word policy comes from the Greek word polis. It's very interesting, the origins of that word, because it refers to a walled city. Ancient cities had walls. That's how they protect the, the those cities were protected against marauders, against, you know, uh, invading armies, uh, you know, crooks and thieves and animals, you name it. But that's where we get the word policy from, you know? So the policy are like the walls. They protect the institution. They protect it against harm. Uh, you know, we, we use the word polite. Polite is the term used for how the, how the citizens inside the wall were to act with one another. Um, the, the, the actual citizens inside a, a polis were called polites. And of course we get the word police and other words, but I think of the policies like that. You know, it, it protects the organization. It protects obviously uh, the employees against liability um, and having them well-written, well-articulated is the way that you're able to communicate them effectively. But I often say your policies then can be wonderful. They can be solid. But then again, but who's protecting the gate? You know, the main entrance to that wall, that, that, that company. It's, it's, it's your front line. Your front line are the eyes and ears of the organization. The, you know, you may have, you know, so a lot of the, you know, the big banks, um, they have very specific tracking. You know, they can track um, uh, sophisticated tracking programs. They can, they can spot frauds and unusual activity. But honestly, nothing replaces the frontline person who's onboarding a client, you know, in, in their ability to spot suspicious behavior, uh, to you know their ability to really get in and understand uh, the 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 source of the funds of their clients, you know um, who who the beneficial owner of X Y Z company is, um, the frontliner are, are integral. So they are the like I said the eyes and ears of that organization. You're you're not going to break my heart with that wordplay. I it's a long time ago now, Mike, but I actually did my. Uh, undergrad in political philosophy and we did the ancients all that good stuff so yeah nice <laughs> there you go <laughs> now just before we uh started recording you gave me some uh spe specific examples and you talked about the insurance side already um plenty of people listening are also going to be securities licensed so what do you see on the security side well for the security side um obviously there's the money laundering piece is interesting because you know we think of money laundering we think in terms of you know placement layering and integration that's the general cycle of how you take illicit funds and you wash them so they appear that they're legitimate um but a lot of insecurities you'll get a lot more in the layering side so for instance the money because they don't accept cash so uh you know securities advisors this isn't the days in the 80s where maybe even the 90s where people are walking up with, you know, bags full of cash, but, you know, they, they'll receive a wire or transfer from a bank. So a bank account, and of course the banks will have done all of that KYC, all of that, those procedures on that. So it's really the piece that they're getting. It's moving from, uh, you know, a bank or some sort of offshore account into their actual um, brokerage firm and usually, you know, somehow passing through it, you know, and going to somewhere else. So their goal, if they can make money on it, great, but the goal is to really move it through. Um, so 
some of the pushback that I've heard from you know, just speaking of securities professionals is, well, they've already done the KYC. Why are you making me do double the work? I mean, that's kind of the pushback. But there's, it's so intricate. And these guys, I mean, the criminals are so, they've thought through these scams. Um, you know, so they know how to manipulate and really uh, take advantage of, of, of the weaknesses in securities companies. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about the, the attacks on the securities firms in terms of there's some that actually happen within. So, for instance, you know, um, you can have uh, insider trading in a securities firm. You can have pump and dump schemes. And we were talking about that coming here, you know, on air here, that uh, the pump and dump scheme, w one that's very famous, uh, was the Canadian financier who tipped off authorities about the college admission scandal in the state. You know, he was recently sentenced to a year in prison for securities fraud, and he had a pump and dump scheme. And, a, you know, and most of your audience is familiar with it, but he secretly, he had a company where he had those shares, the shares secretly controlled. And it, and, uh, it was a shell company. You know, a lot of this happens in offshore, uh, you know, offshore financial centers. Um, and so he promoted this company um, and caused the shares to be artificially inflated um, by a thousand percent. He literally uh, promoted this, this uh, what, they, what the, the actual company was uh, called Environmental Packing Technologies. And he falsely represented the financial potential investors that the shares would go up to by over a hundred, you know, over a thousand percent. But, but in all this, you know, just simple logic and something to keep in mind is the old adage, if it's too good to be true, it probably isn't. I shouldn't be Googling this stock right now, Mike? <laughs> yes, exactly. But if it's too good to be true, let's face it, it, is, it isn't true. And so just common sense, obviously greed really drives this stuff, uh, really on both ends, uh, the, the, the savvy investor. But the, some of the challenges is like in Ponzi schemes, I know of a, a Ponzi scheme set up where the the actual gentleman working in the firm died and so all of a sudden a few months later the 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 firm started receiving these letters from investors saying you know where are where are our dividends and they were like looking around they couldn't find anything where these there were you know trade there were investments that had dividends and they asked them to produce the the documents and it was on their company letterhead it looked official and everything but it was the scheme that was set up by the former advisor. And he had built them of millions of dollars. It was a circle of friends. That's very common, going after your friends, people that you had that baked in uh, trust value. And in the end, even though they were, you know, the fraud was committed on them, they didn't want to press charges. They didn't want to uh, pursue it legally because they just liked the guy so much. Um, you know, he, he, they had a strong, long relationship with them. Very different than Bernie Madoff. I've I've heard this other this thing elsewhere too. I remember reading a case in the United States a couple of years ago where an advisor had clearly done harm by a boatload of clients, and was able to get many of those clients sort of paraded in through the courtroom. And they said, "Yeah, but he's a good guy, right?" Yeah, I guess carries you a long way. <laughs> I shouldn't uh, maybe uh, malign that. Maybe I'll have to use that as my defense one day. Let's find a small number of people who say that. Um, now, 
you uh, you mentioned something that uh, I I was uh, maybe just tangentially familiar with, but I think it's taken a lot of hold lately in the in in the AML sector, and that's these uh, public private partnerships. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on here? Sure, absolutely. Um, this is where you really see the passion in in compliance in those in compliance and those who have a real desire to really you know a, you know I think about training. I think about part of our role is uh, to really sort of um, motivate people to um, carry out these reports, to uh, fill out these reports. We're, we're, mo- we're really appealing to their alt- altruistic mo- you know, motives. They're, they're better angels, that they want to be good members of society. They want to make society better. And Project Protect is probably one of the greatest examples of it, where you have very passionate people, passionate about AML, passionate about stopping, for instance, uh, human trafficking. So these public-private uh, partnerships started about 2015-16. BMO, Bank of Montreal, was a big player in this, and Peter Warwick, who has uh, reached uh, stardom status in the AML uh, compliance field here, um, he really initiated this, and along with uh, Tamia Nagy, who uh, has a great cause, Tamia's cause online. I don't mind mentioning that. She does tremendous work. She's actually um, a survivor of human trafficking, and she advocates. She she has great education on it. But they started this project Protect, um, where they basically had um, started uh, initiated the partnerships between made the major banks, FinTrack with the regulator, and law enforcement, and they went after uh, human trafficking. And it's very interesting to note the year prior to this initiation of this project, there were only 19 disclosures related to human trafficking. The following year, after this project was initiated, there were over 102 disclosures relating to 230 subjects. So when you, when you, when you really have that passion coming to the floor, when you have, um, you know, it really trickles down. It trickles down into to the staff. They really get on board. A lot can be done. And that's really the key. Like I said, the emotional connection where people are motivated to really get involved. Um, and to and to be part of the solution, um, we've seen this also. Uh, just to mention, I, I, if I say this, everyone will, in the audience will actually will actually be cheering this. But it, remember the CRA scam. Um, uh, many of you probably received a phone call saying that you have to pay. Um, you know, your your uh, the tax man's coming after you. You've got to pay, or and the sheriff. That was the thing I noticed. The guy was telling me the sheriff is around the corner. He's going to put me in prison. Well, and somehow I have to pay CRA in Bitcoin now. Yeah, Bitcoin, or I have to go to Western Union, and I've got to, yeah, yeah, very bizarre. So, um, but so there was the, they actually broke this case, and Project Octavia that was launched actually helped to conclude this case. And there were, two, there was a couple, it's amazing, there was one couple specifically, uh, I believe it was in Brampton that were money mules for this Indian, and this is where these call centers are, they were the intermediators, when I say a money mule, it's the intermediator between, intermediary between the criminal organization operating in India and the Canadian victim. So they received the cash, they laundered it, uh, and the RCMP reports, uh, reports showed that they had, had cost victims over $16.8 million in just a five-year span. So very huge. Yeah. And I know we joke about it, but pe- people legitimately got caught on this. And I know one of the things that happens there is you, 
do things like use the word sheriff where you and I know that's not right. And we have pay by Bitcoin, you and I know that's not right. It screens out people who kind of know better. Yeah, well, they're looking for low-hanging fruit. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of seniors, this is where the, the, the real challenge is. You know, we've done it. We've, we've, we have a course on elder financial abuse. We also produce a micro-learning module. It's only about seven minutes long that really shows these scams, these elder scams, senior scams, and how they, they target uh, seniors. You know, they, um, they, they uh, tar- seniors are just, um, they're obviously, they have money, they have investments, um, but they're also, let's face it, they're willing, to, they're very kind and they're outgoing and they're willing to talk and someone shows an interest in them. So they're a real uh, big target. Um, so that is definitely one of the one of the challenges, these senior scams, as well as phishing scams. I, I know that we've talked about phishing scams. Um, one that's a, a very commonplace and everybody in the industry will recognize the, you know, your client, your client actually gets hacked, their account gets hacked, their email account. And then you have uh, the, the criminal actually go, you know, having this wealth, this treasure trove of information, like all of the emails back and forth from the financial advisor to the client. And, you know, many times if there's personal things mentioned, um, they use that. And then they, 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 they actually copy the tone, the writing style of the client. And they, and they, they email them saying, hey, I have this emergency. Um, I'm in the States. Um, you know, we just had an accident. I've got to get some money. Can you wire me this to this account? And it's happened. Um, there's been advisors. These guys are good. They will use social engineering. So they'll go on your Facebook, your, they'll look at your, you know, um, all your information they can gather and, and they'll put that all together and, and, and they'll, it'll seem like it's your actual client. Uh, but it's someone just using all that knowledge that they've acquired. And so, that is very infor- interesting in terms of how important it is, uh, privacy, you know, you know, cyber awareness and protection. Um, uh, even the McEwen University, you, you remember the, um, the McEwen University in Edmonton, they hacked the university, they got in and they figured out a scheme, uh, just false, uh, false invoicing. They, they figured out, uh, they came up with a con- the, the construction company that was doing the construction work for commu- McEwen University. They, um, they sent them an email saying that we need to change our bank account. It looked all very, very um, you know, above board. The staff that were probably reading it at McEwen had no reason to doubt it. It, it looked like it was that company. Uh, they came up with a legitimate excuse for having to change their, um, their actual bank account. And then they invoiced them and they wired them the money. Now, I think they got most of that back. But this, uh, you know, it's very interesting. Um, This sounds like when I first heard of this, like the phishing scams, I thought, well, who would fall for that? Like, really? And there's a lot more protections now. You know, people in the industry are very aware. In fact, several of my uh, clients told me they never send money. They if they get a request like this, they pick up the phone. And if they, if their client doesn't answer the phone, they do not carry out the action, which is, you know, very prudent. So you talked about the, you know, the financial advisor, the uh, insurance agent, the financial planner as being sort of the, you know, the person at the gates before. So, so what should that person be? uh, 
having their client do or getting their client to, to have prepared in order to uh, mitigate some of this risk? Well, well, some of it, first, uh, if we talk about seniors, and this is something that the MFDA, the Mutual Funds Dealer Association, has implemented in terms of safe harbors and, um, you know, trusted a, a trusted contact and having a trusted contact someone that is not financially invested so they wouldn't be a power of attorney you wouldn't have power of attorney or there'd be just someone they could trust to be on the account in case something happened um, in case there was a red flag incident where they would have to um, you know re refer to the trusted contact and have them get more involved so definitely that aspect i know um Really, it's the, it's the, and I, I, we said this earlier on, the KYC aspect, just knowing your client, um, knowing the source of funds, being involved with them. Um, one of my clients is very fascinating. He said, you know, he was dealing with an older man who was about, he was about 80, he was 89 years old, and he was dealing with his account, and he actually talked to his client and got his family to meet all together. So, in other words, um, the, the man was older, but he didn't want there to be an appearance of any impropriety. He wanted, you know, it's, there's an old adage, the multitude of uh, counselors, there's safety. And so he, he wanted to make sure that he had the actual family members present. And so there's a lot of just looking out for your clients um, by knowing, you know, like I said, knowing, um, no, just understanding them. They're, you know, they're everything from their children um, uh, a lot of uh, that personal stuff is very important. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. Very broad, know your client, where it's know their family. I think that's a great example. Know who their power of attorney will be if anything ever goes wrong. Understand their retirement plan. So that if you see $300,000 of withdrawals in a year and a half, you, you know that's uncharacteristic, right? Although hopefully you catch it before that, but yeah. And exactly, like, that's a great point, is knowing their financial goals, um, it's exactly it. So if they veer off of that, um, you know, I'll, and suddenly, and it's not, um, it really doesn't represent their behavior or their stated goals, then absolutely, that's a great way to, and again, it, it's, it, it, it sounds simplistic, but all of that is in the KYC process. Now, do you have a feel, again, this is a challenge that some folks bring up when I talk about this in class, Mike. You know, if I have, and, and you just talked about this fantastic example of getting the whole family together and having the meeting. What about, and I know you're not a lawyer, so you know, no legal advice here, right? Um, what about the case where, so I have a client where, I have very strong reason to believe that there is some elder abuse happening. That person is in my office. They don't really understand what they're asking for, but they're sort of insisting on that withdrawal. You have a feeling for where, where somebody can draw the line at saying, uh, no, we're, we're not going to engage in that activity or in what steps you can take when you're, when you're confronted that with that, if you don't have the trusted contact person set up, which would be the vast majority of cases today, right? Yes, no, it's exactly it. That, I mean, obviously, if you're confronted with that, um, you know, one of the things in our in our in our actual course, our financial abuse of older adults, is they they confer with their legal, 
um, you definitely want to understand um, where you stand and make sure you're on sure footing. So, um, you know, most compliance part departments have legal. They can they can definitely get them on, you know, get some really solid advice as to the next steps. But, um, you know, talking with that client and making sure they understand the circumstances, you know, understanding why are they taking out this amount, you know, um, definitely they have every right to do it and it's really their obligation because they're there they are there to protect their client's interests i think that's where you know we've talked about internal internally in terms of training when it really comes down to it yes they're adults you know they are adults but when it, when it when it gets into diminished capacity and you know they're a really vulnerable uh, uh, subset of the community it, it's very important for uh, the the frontline employee, the financial advisor, to step up and and really, uh, you know, get involved, do a little digging. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think that just have that bit of involvement is exactly exactly. And you know, if you've got a good relationship, I think that's again where the the really good relationships and the ones that are really great. One of my clients, fantastic, the way she deals with her elder clients. She tells them even when they leave and they're going on vacation. To give her a call, let her know for how long they'll be out, and then when they come back. And so th there's a real closeness in that relationship, and, and and part of that again is protecting against potential scams where someone would come in representing them falsely. Um, she knows the whereabouts. She knows the some of those things, and I, and really developing those relationships is like I said is key. And just going back to our insurance agent again, and I know you get to you get some exposure to some of the real life case law around this or case files around this. Uh, can you think of an example where there was a uh, insurance agent involved in a, in an AML case where like you talked about the use of cash value insurance before, is there anything that jumps to mind there, Mike? Well, it, that, that, that actual um, um, case studies, comes from, um, like I said, our, our, an RCMP file and that we use to illustrate money laundering. And that's one of the main ways it's done. The, the, the real challenges is when you get, um, for instance, if you go on the RCMP's website, you can actually look at cases that are solved, different frauds. Um, they'll tell you about FinTrack's involvement, but they don't generally give you the, the details, right? Obviously to, to protect the, uh, you know, the, the organization, uh, people don't know where these reports are really coming from fully. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, it's one of the sort of the promises here is that if you submit a FinTrack report, it's never going to come back to you. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, it, you know, it, it, it's not like with financial advisors who actually directly have to get involved with a, you know, a, a relative who's, who's, who's abusing, you know, an, old, an elder individual, you know, taking money because, um, you know, that can many times escalate where they, they start to threaten the, <laughs> the advisor, right? Why are you getting involved? But um, no, in these cases, uh, for sure, uh, the, the privacy is utmost. Uh, so I don't know of any very specific ones. Um, I think this, I, I, I tend, we have some insurance clients, a lot of ours, uh, are, are more portfolio managers that deal with securities instruments. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. It's sort of, a, it, it'd be nice to have some of those stories, but at the same time, you understand exactly why. Now, a lot of times there's organized crime involved here. I wouldn't want to be the one where 
know, organized crime finds out that I was the instigator of a suspicious transactions report. But speaking of this, just, just one thing to highlight, we recently released a microlearning course on complicit employees. So that's another fascinating study is understanding the, there are complicit employees. There, the, there was a fraud scheme that was committed. Uh, actually, it was a few years ago um, in Oshawa. Uh, the, the major players were in Oshawa. And they had an employee in a securities firm who was actually leaking the data of clients to this fraud. It was 51 people ended up getting arrested. It, it ended up being a nationwide fraud ring. Um, and they have, were committing mortgage fraud, all kinds of frauds uh, with the stolen data. So that, that's an example of complicit employees. And it does happen. And, and money launderers are very clever. So the, it's the carrot and the stick approach when it comes to complicit employees. They can plant someone in there, um, and they work for years to get to get people placed in different. This is kind of a scary notion maybe for people, to, but to get people in, in, into some of these companies. But the other thing is, is they they really they they study human behavior. So they may want to bribe or befriend uh, an employee. Um, you know, you could have romance. Um, scams involved there as well, but romance, um, um, romancing the individual, um, definitely paying the money. You know, they'll look for um, people that, um, you know, maybe are heavily in debt. They're having, they're going through a divorce. They're, you know, their, their children need to go to school, college, and they don't have the money. Um, and, and they target them. They, they study them. And then they will, you know, offer the incentive to turn the other way. Don't, don't fill out this report. Uh, it's a lot more prevalent than people think it is. And, um, you know, complicit employees, the inside man inside that's working inside um, does happen. And on that note, you, again, before we started recording, you had mentioned that what, what you've seen succeed generally is where you have somebody at the top. You talked about Peter Wark before at BMO. And you said, really, once there was somebody at the top who said, we're going to sort of kick this problem, then that filters through successfully to the whole organization. Yeah, it's tone from the top. You know, we often speak about tone from the top and building a culture of compliance. And it, it, that's where it starts. It's the passion. You know, really, it should start with your board. And that's where even educating your board on, you know, the risks uh, to obviously the reputational risks to their your financial institution, your securities firm. If you get a monetary penalty from FinTrack, uh, um, you're just, it, it, it's really a big hit. You know, it takes a, a long time to build your, your, um, your reputation. It, it takes very little time to destroy it. Um, so um, really the board getting the buy-in so that you have the resources, then the compliance staff really having that passion. And that then does filter down, you know, to the staff. Um, you know, we produce courses for uh, large institutions where we've actually had the, 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 the VP um, who's the head of compliance actually speaking directly. It, it, we do these video interviews where they speak about their passion for anti-money laundering and why they're doing it. And that's very effective. Um, so, um, yeah, the tone from the top is, is, is absolutely crucial. Yeah, that's, uh, of course, that makes a ton of sense. I just don't know if everybody would have put that, uh, put that connection together. Now, 
when we're talking about money laundering, I don't think it's necessarily obvious. I, there's a couple, like you talked about human trafficking very specifically. And I'll post a link, actually. I don't know if people would mention would be aware of it, but you mentioned uh, Tamiya Nagy before. And uh, I'm going to post a link to her interview with Preet Banerjee because she does a great job on that interview of talking about uh, money laundering. Obviously, there's a, there's a sex trade element to that, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that she talks about in that interview that's sources of funds for money launderers. But uh, what about, uh, obviously, the drug trade would be another. Any other sources of funds that, that are of particular interest that would be you know, places people would be trying to launder money? Yeah, well, um, you know, frauds of all kinds, obviously, um, you know, the crime, um, obviously, people get into uh, these uh, financial crimes because they produce, they generate a lot of revenue. But um, so uh, we talked about a bit about securities frauds, pump and dump schemes, identity fraud is huge. Uh, the phishing scams, romance scams. Uh, I had a friend of mine uh, got caught in a romance scam. She's in uh, Malaysia with a Nigerian and it went on for years. And the challenge is kind of like elder abuse in many ways because the person gets so locked in emotionally that they, they, they don't even listen to reason. So this person wasn't listening when she, when she was telling people about this romance scam and how the gentleman was saying he needed money for, a, you know, for, for some relatives that were sick and didn't have money, she was spending money. She literally, literally she sold her house um, and lost most of her retirement in the scam over a period of years uh, with all these, you know, promises that he was making. And she couldn't hear it because she was locked into this, you know, this scam. And the elder abuse is very similar because it's hard to tell someone that, you know, a trusted friend or a, a relative would be, you know, trying to take advantage of them. It's it's a very difficult thing to hear. And so um, these scams, uh, um, you know, uh, these elder abuse scams, cyber, cyber theft is a big one. You know, the hacking of data so the, this, and the selling of data, it's amazing the value of data and what it goes for on the black market. So they, you know, you get a, you get a hack, we've seen a lot of them, and they sell that data, data on the dark web, the onion router, and, you know, people are paying um, large, exorbitant amounts of money to be able to acquire that and then to be able to use that to commit other, other frauds. Um, so there's lots of, and it's interesting in our system, this is an interesting stat that I found out, but, um, you know, the, 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 with the narco narcotics trafficking and the human trafficking and those types of crimes that, that generate revenue. Yes. That you get, you get the actual charge. You want to connect it. So part of why the, the frontline training is important is because you can trace the nexus to the, the, the crime very quickly. So for instance, in placement, the money's put into a system. The first place where it is, the training is really focused on noticing that activity because it's so close to the, the crime. But once you move it through the system and start moving around, you start obscuring the audit trail, it's harder to track. And because investigations take long and money moves quickly, it will generally move out of the country. And that audit trail will never catch up. And, and that's what criminals are banking on, that they can move it quickly. So the, the actual being able to identify it and then, and then track that money to the actual illicit activity is, is very key in, in these cases. 
and why these FinTrack reports are so important. But, you know, it's interesting when it comes to white collar crime, it appears that our law, our legal system is not as hard in terms of the money laundering effort. In other words, if you get com convicted of a fraud or a white collar crime, two thirds of the money laundering cases just don't get, uh, they don't get charged. They don't get acted upon. And, and that's a bit strange to me. You know, they, they, they go by the wayside. In the States, in the U.S., it's different. You know, um, they, their laws are different. The money laundering crimes, the money laundering charges actually stick and, and they get prosecuted. Here, it's two-thirds of them don't. Yeah, I find this is a general weakness with white-collar crime. I find it's very common to read a story about a, a financial advisor who borrowed from a client without disclosing that they were borrowing from that client, and that's what they end up getting charged with or when it looks to me like they stole right and i always find that's it's such a i don't know a weak approach to this and it doesn't really do anything to discourage that type of activity no absolutely absolutely are you aware of any efforts to like i guess maybe if if frontline efforts could be beefed up is it does that give prosecutors more ammunition do you have a sense around that kind of thing well, you know, there, there's a there's a lot of things that could be discussed here that could get us into a few uh, a few go down going down a few rabbit holes. One is just uh, a little more teeth. You know, you know, when it comes to money laundering, um, you need the political will. You need the political will in a country to really push that those enforcement penalties. And you know, let's face it, uh, FinTrack has had some challenges in that area. You know, um, they. Uh, there's got to be more teeth in it from that perspective. Uh, FinTrack, speaking of FinTrack, uh, really, and, and it, that, that's a political issue. That really comes down to, you know, you'll see this in corrupt company, uh, countries that, well, there's no political will. They're, they're all making money off this. Um, they're all, you know, the corrupt officials being bribed left, right, and center, and they are the beneficiaries of all this illicit, all, the, all these illicit funds. So, uh, in, you would think in, in countries like ours, uh, stable democracies, there would be a little bit more, um, I don't know, pushback from the regulator, from the government. But, uh, just, you know, it was just released. I don't know if you saw these FinCEN, uh, the FinCEN files. I just, I believe, yeah, I think I read it, but on uh, ICJI or what, is that right? Yeah, exactly. That was where it was released. It was, and, you know, it, it, it's... Um, it was re it was released that you know we're talking about two trillion dollars worth of activity, um, and you know thousands of uh, SARS as we're talking about FinCEN. But the, the the basically it shows that the banks knew that this activity was going on. They had you know got a slap on the wrist and they continued in it. Yes, and I remember there was a bank that's now a double offender because of this. That yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's a few, yeah, there, there, I, I don't want to name them, but there's a, a few of the real large ones got, uh, uh, come up in this. And again, what that does is, you know, it gives sort of ammunition to the, ammunition to the naysayers who say, well, look at the big banks, you know, look what they're getting away with. Why do, you know, I'm just a small securities firm or, you know, why do, you know, and, and yet, you know, it's, it's, it's a silly notion to not think that you're not a target because you are. So it's, you know, it's, we can't, 
we can't point to the offenders and use them as our, our, our examples, you know. We've got to point to the ones that are actually doing a great job. That's a good point. All right. I'm going to have to wrap up there, Mike. We're, uh, we're, that's, a, that's a good, robust uh, chunk of content. Is there any last-minute closing words you'd have for, for folks listening to this? Well, I would just say that um, in terms of, um, you know, your compliance and, and your, the training that you put forward to your organization, the biggest key is really engaging your staff um, and, and not from a negative perspective. So as a, as a quick way to wrap up where sort of I started on really um, how to get full engagement um, and getting your staff to understand the whys and wherefores, Learning is an interesting thing, and I'm very passionate about this, Jason, so are you. But again, the emotional engagement on the front line is so key. And I think what happens and what hurts a lot of the, the compliance training is really it's the stick and not the carrot. So I'll give you an example. It's the, I've seen a lot of compliance programs where the training literally is all about the penalties you could endure if you don't carry this out. and you know, all of the risks, it's all negative. It's, it's just, it's fear-based, it's negative. Um, you know, and from, a, from, if you examine the psychology of learning, you understand that fear is so counterproductive to actual learning. Um, and, and, and one of the things, I'll just quickly note this, um, again, a little bit more information maybe than you, were, you banked on. When we receive any information, I was reading this the other day, of any kind, it travels to our, the neural networks in our brain. It first encounters a part of our brain that's the emotional center. And before it ever reaches the analytical or interpretive part. So the job of the emotional center is to determine if that information we're receiving is a threat to our security or not. And the brain does not distinguish between, you know, um, you know threats on paper or, you know, penalties or you're going to be fired or those type of pressures or, or you know, a fist you know, coming towards your head or an ongoing train. It, it triggers the fight or flight response. So because of that, um, the brain actually produces chemicals that would normally be used in brain-driven activities such as learning, and it focuses on the protection. And so it actually is counterintuitive. And we see this all the time in people that take exams that freeze up, that literally cannot get that learning out. Um, but it happens so subtly in, in when, when there's such a negative approach to training. So we take a different approach. And this is what I encourage people to do in, in the training. Appeal to your staff. Um, show them the activity. Show them how they're actually contributing to a better society. Show them the cases where, you know, that report was filled and, you know, this human trafficking ring was taken down because someone filled out a report. It's that positive input that will really encourage your staff to carry out this compliance, uh, the, the compliance roles that they have. I think that's a great message in that. And actually now students in their uh, sort of a financial planner curriculum learn what you're just talking about, Mike. We do the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex, all that good stuff. It's a, it's a nice addition to the curriculum. And I think you're right. It helps to explain some of these things that that otherwise seem counterintuitive. Well, thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'd like to thank you very much, Mike. I think it's a, a, a great service here that you've, uh, you know, to, to just take our listeners through some of this. And uh, yeah, great work that Tamlo does in support of this. So have a wonderful day. Thank you very kindly. 
The number for today's episode is five. The number for today's episode is five. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, just down below the episode description here, you'll find a bunch of links relevant to today's episode. I would strongly encourage you to pop over to the Preet Banerjee podcast we had Tamea Nagy on. Tamea was excellent. And I think I'm going to actually, I think, have Tamea on the podcast here. I reached out to her and she's agreed that she'd be willing to do this, but we just have to schedule something. But Tamea's story is incredible. And it's a concrete example of a money laundering scenario. She talks about some applications of technology here, her impact on her real life and where this led her to. In my uh, regular financial planning engagements, uh, I deal with a lot of low-income folks, and I've had a few clients there who uh, have been victims of uh, human trafficking specifically. So it was interesting to me to hear uh, Tamiya talk about that and really turn it into a very high-profile cause. So I would encourage you to pop over to uh, Preet's podcast, give that episode a listen. It's uh, quite well done. Okay, following this, we're going to have a little bit of a series on group benefits. I've got Mike McClenahan from Benefits by Design coming up in a couple of weeks. And following that, and actually we'll have two episodes in a row with Mike. Mike and I covered a lot of ground in our discussion. And following that, I'll have Dave uh, Patriarch, who many of you will know from Canadian Group Insurance Brokers. So we've got a good series coming up on group benefits. And then following that, at the suggestion of a couple of podcast listeners, uh, Ian in Calgary, as well as Darren in Winnipeg, we're going to do some uh, in-depth looking at retirement income planning. We're going to delve into the retirement policy statement. We're going to talk about income uh, and then asset allocation. And we'll touch on other topics like tax location, the role of the RSP, the role of annuities in those upcoming episodes. Thanks very much. And please do join us again in a couple of weeks.
few people help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing and music and a bunch of the technology stuff in the background. Maria Nguyen gets all of our various accreditations done through the uh, various accrediting bodies. And Colton Nierbeski and his team make sure that the word gets out. They take care of the marketing and all that goes along with that. Mm-hmm.